Now that the battle lines are drawn, David wastes no time in confronting Goliath. This is the 37th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority and Exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel in chapter 17, beginning in verse 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 58. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him. And he took his staff in his hand, and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou should comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air, and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee, and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass, when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David took his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. 
But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until thou come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way to Sharon, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistines, he said unto Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, Inquire thou whose son the stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son art thou, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The Hebrew writer writing in Hebrews chapter 11, the first six verses. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel, offer unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he, being dead, yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated, that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. John Calvin once said, Even a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. David would not allow this uncircumcised Philistine to bark blasphemies against God without overtly challenging him. Israel was, at this point, so ill-equipped to defend the honor of God against the perverted ravings of Goliath of Gath that they did nothing for his glory. Fear had gripped them to the degree that they were paralyzed to do anything in defense of God who had time and time again delivered them from the wickedness and the oppression of their enemies. They had forgotten all that God had done and all the promises that God had made and they were then paralyzed by fear. In fact, Israel's fear was so great simply because their faith was so small that they were psychologically, morally and militarily paralyzed to the extent that they were on the verge of total annihilation. The Philistines had Israel in a stranglehold and they had no recourse or hope of escape since they had abandoned the only hope for victory and that was the God of their fathers. And this is where the modern church in the United States of America sits today in our 21st century. We are in the midst of that same kind of situation. 
Like ancient Israel, the people of our nation, including many pastors and churchgoers, are hiding in the hills of their four-walled ghettos churches, hoping that the, the status tyrant Goliath would leave them alone. Hoping that they might be able to appease the state by totally complying. They were only going deeper and deeper into the web of the state's tyrannical death grip. And all one has to look at is the news to see this happening. It is not enough for the state to bark blasphemies. The state now wants to act upon those blasphemies. America and her churches that once were the stronghold of faith, the stronghold of courage, the culture's moral and ethical foundation, they have forgotten the God of America's history who is the God of Scripture. Too many today are hiding, like Israel, waiting for a man to deliver them. And usually that man is in the form of a political leader or a military leader, or perhaps through a rapture event, completely ignorant that the God-man has already, Jesus Christ has already given them the victory, and he has commissioned the church, the body of Christ, to go forth. We're not to wait for a political leader. We're not to wait for any military campaign or legal action to deliver us. The church must, as the body of Christ, be that hero. All of God's people are to do in order to be victorious. All they are to do to be victorious is to trust God and face off against the tyrant, face off against every wicked man, every wicked institution, every wicked government and ideology that seeks to dethrone God and bring a defiling reproach upon the body of Christ. But we find today, over and over and over, ministers are just very comfortable waiting for the smoke to clear and everything will be fine, but everything is not going to be fine. If the church does not stand up, and that means you, in the area that we can work, we must work. We can't say, well, I can't wait for that church down the street to do something because they've got a lot of money or they've got a lot of power or this one or that one. I can't wait for all the churches to galvanize together because that's not happening. We need to begin. As a result of faithlessness, forgetfulness, compromise and worldliness, Israel became depleted of heroes. The church today has been depleted of its possible heroes because of the message of the gospel which has been watered down. No longer the church militant and triumphant. No longer the militant church which is victorious. Now the church has become effeminate, waiting for Jesus to just pull them out of the mess that they're in. Israel had rejected Samuel, the judge, and the Nazarite warrior, and they chose a man who was nothing more than a cowardly plebeian, a Saul. And this is what happens when a church or a nation forgets God. God removes heroes from the midst of the culture and then delivers them over to girly men who can't even utter the words of honor and courage, let alone act upon the words honor and courage. And this is where we are at this very moment. This is where we are at this very hour, the very hour in our history and amidst God's timeline of events. You can't come on a Sunday morning and hope that the world just goes away. You can't come here on a Sunday morning and think that all of the threats against God's people are not reality. But too many are forgetting that. And that's what happens when a church or nation forgets God. The threats keep going and 
the problems get worse. What we need more than anything at this very hour are godly heroes who trust God. I read something the other day on the internet. You know, some parents are lamenting that they have to leave this world to their children, which is in such a, a turmoil, such a horrible state of affairs. And we certainly are in a horrible state of affairs. And we're lamenting we have to leave our little boy and little girl when we depart into a world of, of tyranny. Well, I read the other day something that was encouraging. In a land of dragons, we must raise dragon slayers. In a land of giants, we must raise Davids. That is your mission. That is your purpose, father, mother. What we need are men and women, boys and girls of faith, resolution, and obedience. What we do not need are hypocrites, empty theologians, and pew-warming slots who fill the pews each Lord's Day, but are completely void of any regenerating power. We need men and women of action, conviction, resolve, tenacity, all of those who function in the fear of God by living a life of unreproachable holiness committed to kingdom work and not being afraid of the threatenings. That's what they are. Threatenings. Wars and rumors of wars. And that's what Israel needed. And by the grace of God, because God is a pitiful father, even in their fear, in their cowardice, in their complacency, God pities them. He pities them, and accordingly, He sends them unassuming, humble David, the faithful shepherd of Israel. Rejecting Saul's armor, David enters into the field of battle to face off against Goliath with only a simple catalog of weaponry. But the only weapons that he knew that he could prove, a staff, a sling, and five smooth stones. But his secret weapon was none of those. His secret weapon was God himself and his faith in God. And it was this divine weapon, this faith that David had, this conviction that David had, that God had graciously given him for this very purpose, to defeat Israel's tyrant and the armies of Israel. It was this that David trusted in. Notice, and he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag which he had. And his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. David then, he draws near to the giant determined and unafraid. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare his shield went before him. Okay, so here it is. Finally, the two, the shepherd boy and the incredible ten-foot giant, they now are face to face in the valley of decision, even in the valley of blood, and there's no turning back. Once David entered into that valley, there was no turning back. That was it. Once you said, yes, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you said, I am part of the body of Christ. Once you said, I am a Christian. 
there was no turning back. Once you said that I will trust the Lord, no matter what comes, there was no turning back. David goes into the valley of decision and he knew, he knew that there would be no turning back. But turning back in David's mind was never an option. He never went into the battle thinking, well, maybe it's going to be really bad. Maybe I could run away. No, he had nothing in his mind to that degree. He knew that he would stay until the battle was ended. And here's a man fully resolute to enter into the conflict, armed with the weapons of divine warfare, fully confident that God would deliver this Philistine into his hand. And this is what David knew. And that's what the Philistine would find out. I can't wait for the wicked to find out just how wrathful God is against them. I'm just waiting. I'm anticipating. I want to watch as I wait upon the Lord, God destroying the wicked. But Goliath didn't understand, nor could he have ever been able to wrap his giant head around, was that this young shepherd was more than a giant than he was. Goliath looked at David through the carnal eyes of man and saw a young shepherd boy of a beautiful countenance who was ready. But what he didn't see was a mighty warrior of such impeccable skill, conviction, faith, and resolution. If he would have seen that, understanding that God was on David's side, he would have fled the battlefield screaming like a little girl. But God had blinded his eyes. God had blinded the eye of the wicked. And in his ignorance and in his arrogance, Goliath sees David as nothing, almost in the same way as Christ was seen many centuries later when the people asked in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Jesus? They're looking at him like this is the carpenter's son. How do we look at God? And then in John one forty six, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? So when the Philistine looked about and he saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. You see, he saw with the eyes of man and not with the eye of faith. Seeing David, Goliath resumes his foul mouth threatenings. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. That was a threat. That was a threat that the Philistine could not capitalize upon. Now David could have responded, said, Oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe, I'm, a hair, maybe I'm above my pay grade here. Maybe I'm over my head now. Maybe I, I, I didn't uh, plan very properly. Maybe I'm going to need a helper. Not so. Consider David's absolute conviction. By the grace of God, his conviction of what God is going to do. Verse 46. Notice what David says. Even... In the face of the threatenings, he says, No, this day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, 
And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Consider firstly, David tells Goliath that it is God, not David, who will bring the victory. Secondly, David also clearly states that God will do this very thing by the hand of this young shepherd boy. What a humbling experience for the Philistine. This in and of itself was an insult to this great giant, this man of war. And David is careful to say this as an insult. Notice, he's begging the guy on. I just love this. When I look at it and I I envision it in my mind, he is insulting this man and he's seeking to infuriate the giant, egging him on, saying, come on. This little boy, a teenager, Note how he's egging him on, taunting him, giving him exactly what he gave him. In other words, he is taunting him in the same way that the giant taunted Israel. David is mocking Goliath, even as God mocks the wicked. He's mocking Goliath by telling him that he will be defeated by a mere shepherd boy. And this was especially shameful since the Philistines despise shepherds as low-life nothings. Even as the state today despises the church of Jesus Christ as low-life nothings, holding on to their Bibles and, and, and their guns and their whatever. That's what the state thinks of the church. That's what the state thinks of religion. That's what the state thinks of you. That's what the state thinks of me. Thirdly, David then makes it painfully clear, almost to a certainty, that he will smite the giant and chop off his head. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill you and I'm going to take off your head. This declaration is especially important since it continues the covenant theme of the crushing of the serpent's head promised in Genesis chapter 3. This head removal has an additional meaning. Since the Philistines had military dominion over Israel, they were in fact the head. Israel, as a result of their lack of faith, and this is what happens when we are lacking in faith, we become the tail. Israel had become the tail. The idea of headship authority here is implied. By removing Goliath's head, David is reversing the headship authority of the Philistines, which they had over Israel, and transferring it to David and Israel as the new headship authority over the Philistines under God. And notice, he declares this publicly. But that wasn't all. He then accomplishes it publicly. David uses the same model of Genesis 3 where God first declares that he will crush the serpent's head and then actually does so by the work of Christ on the cross. And here again, we have the theme of head crushing. Fourthly, David does not simply stop at the slaughter of Goliath. That just set the stage for total victory. He rather sets his sights beyond the Goliath and he looks to destroy the entire army of the Philistines. Notice what he says. I will give the carcasses of the host of the army of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. I'm going to go beyond the giant. I'm going to take everybody with me. I'm going to take them all out. This was an incredibly bold statement. Almost almost incomprehensible. 
But what made this statement bolder was that David framed it as an oath before heaven and earth so that the Philistines would hear it. And this was no mere intimidation tactic since many in the Philistine camp despised David in the same way as Goliath did and saw David as an insignificant bug that needed to be squashed. This was an oath that he's taking before God. I will do this, so help me God. Fifthly, in David's final remark, he shows his true motivation and his true heart's desire because David is doing this for one reason and one reason only. Notice what he says, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I'm doing this because I need to once and for all make sure everybody knows that God is who he says he is. That God will destroy the armies of the wicked. David's not content that the Philistines know that there's a God in Israel, nor is he satisfied that Israel knows that there's a God in Israel. He wants everybody to know. He wants the world to know that there is a God, a true God, the God of Scripture. He wanted God's victory to go global. Here's a man of God that feared God rather than man, and he wanted the world to know that God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked, the Apostle Paul says, for whatsoever a man soweth that also shall he reap. Now while David wants the Philistines and the entire world to know, which of course would include Israel, he makes a special mention about Israel in verse 47. And it is as if David is calling even his brethren out for their faithlessness. And so before he confronts the giant, he confronts the army of Israel also. Notice he calls them to account for their faithless behavior in verse 47. And all this assembly... Notice, and you. So he's in the field of battle. He's looking at the giant. He's declaring what he's going to do to the giant. And then he turns to Israel and says, And all of this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands, even the Philistines. This was also a smack against Saul, who wanted David to use his armor to fight Goliath. And David is actually telling Israel that faith in God is what brings victory, not Saul and not his armor. And this is the intent of the psalmist when he says in Psalm 18, David declaring, For by thee, by you, by God, I have run through a troop, and by my God have I leaped over a wall. Israel had compromised their religion and their entire testimony as a result of their fearfulness. And this is what is happening today. Right before our very eyes, when the churches, church leaders, and those professing the Christian faith failed to resist the tyranny of man. Now, why was David so, why was David so sure of himself? He was reading the Word of God. He was studying the Word of God. You get a lot of time among sheep to read. He was not a man of the world, he was a man of the book. So before you think, before any of us think, that we can stand against giants, we better be well read in the Word of God. We must be prepared prayerfully. We must have our lives in order. Never think for a moment that you can harbor sin and still defeat the giant. You cannot harbor sin and then stand before the tyrant. You will be eaten up. You will be destroyed. 
So you get your house in order first. David's house was in order. His personal life, his devotion before God. He was the man of the scripture. That's why he could say what he said with such conviction knowing that God would be there for him. And right before our very eyes, the churches, church leaders, and those professing the Christian faith, they are unable to stand against tyranny because they are not right with God. And as a result, they've compromised their religion and they have no longer any trustworthy profession in the eyes of heaven and earth. As one commentator observes, quote, the life of fear will manifest in compromises of commitment to God's word in all areas of life, such as parenting, honesty in business, honesty in money, political decisions, including voting, personal grudges, and so much more. Now, once these formalities are concluded, David and Goliath face off. And it came to pass, verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hastened, and I just love this part, and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. David was no time but run straightway toward the Philistine, fully confident of his destruction. Notice, consider the tactic. David immediately goes on the offensive. He engages the enemy before the enemy has even a chance to assess the situation because he's determined to draw first blood and to make a quick work of the giant. This is a man of resolve. This is a man of faith. This is a man of skill. And as he runs, he equips himself with the weapons of his choice. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence his stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead, wasting no time. And that stone was thrown with such force that it sunk deep into the forehead of the Philistine and he fell on his face to the earth. A single stone ended the entire battle. Now consider the situation for a moment in detail. Both armies anticipated some sort of battle. The Philistines probably thought the battle would be quick since David seemed to be no challenge for their champion. Israel might have thought the same way. Said, oh no, there goes my brother. There goes my, 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 the shepherd boy of Jesse. So Israel might have thought the same thing. In fact, they had been maybe getting ready at that point to surrender to the tyrannical Philistine. Oh no, there's David. There we go. That naughty boy. Let's just, Get ready to surrender everything. Perhaps David's brothers especially. Not only anticipating their slavery, but David's death. Maybe they even thought he'd run away, finally getting to the valley of decision, the valley of blood against the giant. Maybe they thought he would run away. And maybe they even would be satisfied if he did run away, since they thought that he had been proud and presumptuous. Maybe they thought this would teach him a lesson in humility. David's older brother especially may have been thinking that he might have been the one, not David, that was chosen instead by Samuel. Secondly, although each army anticipated a battle of some substance and duration, the fight was over in a nanosecond. It was done. It was a done deal. One single blow, one stone, the battle was over. Thirdly, I would imagine that both sides were astonished Note the topology within the historical narrative. A number of things were in play here, especially pointing eschatologically to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, David uses a stone as the destroying element. 
In one respect, the scripture identifies the stone symbolically as the law of God, as in the Ten Commandments, which were written upon a tablet of stone. We also know that stoning was a form of execution for the violation of the law of God. And this is why Jesus, when he was buried, the grave had a great stone rolled in front of it, symbolizing the law's power to send him to hell as a result of bearing the sins of the elect. And yet, the uh, stone is rolled away because of the victory. But when, of course, that stone was rolled away, it's shown that the, the law's power, the condemning power of the law, could no longer hold him as a result of his perfect and sinless obedience and his atoning sacrifice. But there's a second aspect to the law's symbology. The law symbolizes the Lord himself as the lawgiver who is identified as the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Speaking of the Lord, the Apostle Peter explains it this way in 1 Peter 2, 4 and following. To whom coming as unto a lively stone, or a living stone, disavowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So Goliath is actually destroyed by David's skillful use of the law and faith in God, and yet Goliath represents the law's condemning power, which Jesus had to destroy for the redemption of the elect. And so by Jesus' obedience to the law, using it to obey his Father's will and fulfilling it perfectly, he puts the condemning power of the law to death in our behalf. And this is why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He also explains to the church at Ephesus, the destruction of the condemning power of the law. In chapter 2, verse 14, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both one unto God, in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity, the power of the law's condemning power, thereby. A further point which God makes is the stone entered into Goliath's forehead. In the same way as Goliath's head being cut off symbolizes head crushing, so too does the stone entering into Goliath's head symbolize the crushing of the head of the serpent. The forehead in scripture, represents the whole man and his headship authority. Think about Aaron. Aaron was given a priestly mitre, and on the priestly mitre, on his forehead, it was written, Holiness unto the Lord. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God would destroy the population, but the elect, he would save alive. He would redeem them. And what he did was he placed a mark on their forehead and he passed over them and did not kill them because he 
regarded them as his people. So this idea of the forehead represents the whole man and his headship authority. And so historically, David destroys the whole man and the authority that he had over Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Spiritually, soteriologically, according to the salvation message, Christ destroys the headship authority of the condemning power of the law, the headship authority of Adam, who of course, destroys the human race by his failure to obey and becomes the new head. Christ becomes the new head even as David becomes the new head over his people. And that's why David had to also not only destroy Goliath with the stone, but he had to take the head off. He takes the head off. He takes the head off of Goliath with one swoop of the sword, making David the new head. And that is the third point that God makes. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore he ran and stood upon the Philistine and took a sword and drew it out of its sheath and slew him and cut off his head therewith. Now, once the Philistines see this, of course, they renege on their agreement. Remember the agreement. If you win, we'll become your slaves. I'm sorry. Cancel that. We renege. We're going to just run away. We're not going to become your slaves. No way. So they renege on their agreement to become Israel's slaves and they run for their lives. And they fled. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Seeing David's victory, the army of Israel then is encouraged to the point of great courage. And this is how the church should react. Since Jesus has defeated, remember, David is a type of Christ. And since Jesus has defeated the condemning power of the law, he has put to death all the tyrants of the wicked. He has promised salvation and sanctification and power to his holy army, promising to crush the head of the wicked, as well as the wicked nations of the world. Because of that promise, we should be pursuing the enemy. We see Israel did not say, well, let David pursue. No, they followed David. We should be following David. We should be following Christ. So where is the action? Where is the church? Why is the church idle? Why remain idle? Why are the church folk and her leaders still cowering in the hills before the Philistines of the 21st century? For all their folly, to Israel's credit, Israel responds courageously with David in the lead. We see this in verse 52. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. Notice, now they're pursuing. Now they have them on the run. Until they came to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way even unto Gath and to Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines and noticed they spoiled their tents. Total humiliation. Now to understand the historical account is easy. Israel rises up because David defeated the champion. They're encouraged. They, uh, they are totally humiliating the Philistines and they're taking everything, everything from their tents. And the word God uses here is spoiled. By the efforts and the victory of David, Israel was able to spoil the enemy's tent. In other words, Israel took dominion. And that's what we should be doing 
Our David, our Jesus, has spoiled principalities and powers so that we might continue that spoiling. We might take dominion. Instead of being subject to the dominion powers of the Antichrist, we should be setting the stage. Notice what Paul points out. He points this out to the church at Colossae. Colossians 2.13 and following. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, that condemning power of the law, Notice, verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, that's past tense. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You see, the problem with the modern church is that they have it backwards. Instead of spoiling the enemy by their lack of faith and action, they are being spoiled by the enemy. And this is exactly what Paul warned the first century church about. Beware, Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the false gospels of the Jesus loves you gospel, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. After slaying the giant and taking his head, David goes even one step further. He brings the head to Jerusalem. It wasn't enough just to take his head. He had to bring the head to Jerusalem. And now at this time, Jerusalem belonged to the Jebusites. David had not conquered it yet. Israel didn't own it. There was no capturing of the city yet. And yet, he brings the head of Goliath to Jerusalem in order to show that there was now a change in dominion headship from the dreaded Philistines to the Israelites who had God on their side. A change in venue, seeing all that had transpired, seeing this incredible feat of courage in God's intervention. Saul asks a very curious question. And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As thy soul liveth, I cannot tell, O king. Now that's odd. One might think that Saul would know who David's father was, since David was already ministering to Saul when he was in his maddened state of mind. Obviously he didn't know David's family, probably didn't really even know David. But why ask whose father was? Why was that important? Well, the reason for this may have to do with the oath that Saul made. Remember, Saul had promised to enrich the man who killed, or at least the family of the man who killed the giant with great riches, no taxation, he'd be free in Israel. He would also grant the daughter in marriage and make the man's father's house free. And there are all these glorious things. You want to know, well, what pedigree is, is David? He wanted to know who Jesse was. Who was his father? What was his upbringing like? Did he have any brothers and sisters? All he knew of David is what David had told him. He was a shepherd. And that's what he said just before he went down to the valley. And yet this very same David was a shepherd boy who was confronting Saul and comforting him by his music when Saul was being possessed by his madness. Another curious question is this. How is it that Saul didn't know Jesse, David's father? Since it was Saul who sent messengers to Jesse so that David could comfort Saul with his harp. Commenters have argued that the timeline is wrong, but I don't believe this. What I believe may have been the situation is that 
Saul paid so little attention to both David and Jesse that he failed to connect David the warrior and David the sweet psalmist. He loved David as the sweet psalmist, but when David stood before him and said, I'm a warrior, he's like, you're only a kid. So what Saul saw was the sweet psalmist as if David could only be the comforter, the sweet psalmist, and not the warrior. The modern church has made the same mistake. The modern church has looked at the Jesus of Nazareth as the sweet psalmist, the comforter, the Jesus who loves you. Like Saul, the church has forgotten to see the whole Jesus. The comforter, yes, but the warrior as well. They like to see Jesus as the suffering and comforting shepherd. But they fail to see him as the valiant warrior king. When David stood before Saul, all Saul could see was himself and his need for comfort without taking careful notice of who it was that was comforting him. And this too echoes a problem. Many Christians are so introspective that they call for the Christ, the sweet psalmist, to comfort them. But they fail to take notice of who is in all of his glory. It's Christ. They fail to see Christ in all of his glory. They fail to understand who Jesus, his father is. Remember what Saul is saying. Who's his father? I'm telling you, Jesus' father is Yahweh of the Old Testament. This is the God of creation. He is the great I am, the ancient of days, the sovereign creator of the universe, and the judge of men and nations. We cannot see Jesus just as our comforter. We have to see him in all of his splendor. Saul missed all that David was as a result of his self-centered carnality. Desiring to know who David and Jesse are, Saul asks him directly. And Saul said unto him, Whose son art thou, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And it is as if David may be even saying, Don't you know me? I am David, the shepherd you sent for from the house of my father, Jesse. Upon this testimony, there's a paradigm shift concerning the relationship between the deposed King Saul and the coming King David. And as a result of this change in relationship between these two men, as a result, now trouble begins. We will explore that next as we consider more in the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.